Hello. Good morning. And welcome back to the Business of Human Flourishing. It is my second to last official day working at Greenhill with Trip, And it's, it's sad to go, but I'm excited to keep on working on the podcast. If it'll have me. Um, we'll see. It just depends about those analogies you're prone to. If you can keep those to a minimum, I'll keep you around. I will be extremely explicit in what I say. <laughs> there will be zero analogies. <laughs> That's I, unlikely. All right, well, let's get into it. What are we going to talk about today, Michael? So we're going to talk about uh, for-profit health care. For-profit health care. Everyone's favorite thing. Yeah. People love for-profit health care, huh? Yes, they do. I mean, we have a major health care show in our country. Spending on health care is grown from 5% of GDP in 1960 to over 17% today. Despite playing, you know, paying out the nose for our outcomes, they're getting worse. Life expectancy has dropped for the first time in modern U.S. history. Um, this is due to the prevalence of drug overdoses, chronic diseases, but also the lack of access to care and lack of affordability. And, you know, people, when people look at the causes of this, um, they often bring up for-profit health care. And I think, you know, we're going to dive into that today and discuss a little bit about it, especially considering the fact that you trip own and operate a for-profit health care company. I do. A very small one. But nonetheless, I'm in the for-profit healthcare space. I'm one of the greedy capitalists taking advantage of sick people. Taking advantage of sick people. Yeah. The, does it, is that how you tell yourself what you're doing? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> even though I can be pretty self-deprecating, I don't think that I'm taking advantage of any sick people. That's certainly not the goal. Uh, when I think about this, you know, one of the things that I've become increasingly interested in is the effect of altruism movement. And reading straight from their website, uh, effective altruism is changing the way we do good. Effective altruism is about answering one simple question. How can we use our resources to help others the most? We use, science, we use evidence and careful analysis to find the very best causes to work on. But it's no use answering the question unless you act on it. Effective altruism is all about following through. It's about being generous with your time and your money to do the most good you can. So when I read that, you know, there are two things, time and money, basically. That's what effective altruism is about. How can we use our time and our money to do the most good? So I wanted to get into healthcare. I wanted to help other people who had struggled with substance use disorders or were struggling with substance use disorders and mental health, you know, really reach their full potential. And so I want to dedicate my working life to you know, promoting human flourishing. The whole purpose of this podcast is to discuss, you know, this idea of human flourishing and how we can get more of it for ourselves and for others. So when I think of for-profit healthcare, I just thought of, hey, we're, we're starting a company and we want to help others. And wouldn't it be great, you know, when we talk about the rising healthcare costs, healthcare could be 50% of GDP if we were doing a great job and everyone was happy. I, I think mm -hmm. sometimes those numbers are a little misleading. Healthcare should be something we spend a lot of money on. Healthcare should be great, though. It should really, the outcome should be outstanding, dare I say. But they're not. And so for-profit healthcare has come under a lot of scrutiny because of the incentives. I mean, if you are an owner of a for-profit healthcare company, you are, you know, if you... If you're profit maximizing, which is typically the, the thought for for-profit businesses, you are not really keeping the interests of your customers or patients 
at the front of your mind. So I think there are some big problems with for-profit healthcare, but I think we see a lot of the same problems in the not-for-profit sector. Really? So problems with uh, that in the not-for-profit sector? Well, one of the things I always go back to is just compensation. I mean, there's a huge risk... You know, when we think about entrepreneurship in general, one of the things is you get compensated for the risk you take. So I dropped out of law school to help start a company. And that company, the mission is to help people live with profound purpose. And the, the thing is that there are, you know, I, I, bottom line is I took basically zero salary for the first three years to try and get this going. And I can look on, we can look up, not-for-profit 990s and see what their executive compensation is. I have seen numerous CEOs who are compensated upwards of $500,000 only to lose money for their organizations. And that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. So I think there are, you know, when it comes to things like compensation, you know, some of the incentives aren't great in any healthcare system. But whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit, the goal needs to be Really, we need to focus on what we value, and that should be access to care, affordability of care, and quality of care. Yeah, and it doesn't seem very effective when you're taking huge salaries and and you're constantly hemorrhaging money. And, yeah. and then the bottom line is, if someone had truly figured out health care, and, and there will never be an end, this isn't a, a puzzle we can solve because it's always evolving, but if someone had really figured out a special way to do this, they should get the lion's share of the profits, and, and we should all be better off because of it. I think the frustration with our healthcare system just goes back to us, you know, we don't have good outcomes, and we pay a lot of money. Those yeah. should not happen at the same time. So I think, you know, we were talking beforehand, what are some of the things and drawbacks besides the, the you know, executive compensation issue? That for-profit, you know, people think of it as being, you know, costless. What are some of the costs, you know, of... For, you know, not-for-profit healthcare. Uh, can you say that again? Yeah, so the, the cost. Are we talking like, you know, I think we were talking about how your direction, your decision-making is based off your ability to fundraise. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, I think there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right. I mean, everyone's salary is getting paid from somewhere. And I think it, it feels good. And, and I'm a huge fan of the not-for-profit sector. I think it's incredibly important and that a lot of work that wouldn't be done otherwise is made possible through, you know, grant funding, through private donations, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the people that work for you are getting paid a salary from somewhere. And one of the problems I see in over-reliance on not-for-profit health care is that we are we're either relying solely on the government to subsidize our costs, and then everyone is basically a government employee. I'm, and I'm, I'm all for... Uh, the government doing what it does well. Yeah, you were you were a government employee for. I was, I was in the army for five years, so. I mean, I'm, and and honestly, I think there are a lot of lessons we can learn from the military healthcare system. I mean, they do a really good job of preventative care. Now, I assure you, I have seen horrendous outcomes as well. Um, a lot of the people I know, if they needed a big procedure, wanted to go outside the. The military system. That, that's taking us on a different tangent. Yeah. But I do think that we there's a lot to learn from different healthcare systems. Okay. And um, 
when we're talking about incentives, we're talking about for-profit, we're talking about uh, all of these, I think the point that we're reaching is that it's not really for-profit versus not-for-profit issue. We should really be looking at outcomes. We should be looking at access, and we should be looking at the cost right. or the, the efficiency of it. Ultimately, exactly. Efficiency is key because just because we get great outcomes, if it's prohibitively expensive, it's worthless. I mean, it just doesn't do any, any good unless you're in the top 1%. So we need to figure out how to build a health care system that gets good outcomes for the vast majority of the American population. Yeah, so do you think that any there are any innovations going on right now that might be yeah. potentially you know, allow us to work on those three things? Well, when we, when we look at the health care system as a whole, I always like to frame it as we have some key stakeholders, and we typically think of patients – the providers that are, you know, providing the health care, and then the payers. And the payers typically consist of either commercial insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, or uh, you could be getting payers. They could be smaller not-for-profits that are providing a particular service and, and rely on private donations or something of that sort. So I think that one of the big keys to getting into the next generation of healthcare. quick side note, ZDog MD great podcast, talks a lot about healthcare 3.0, and I wish I had typed up his definition of healthcare 3.0, but basically we're at a time where our healthcare system has evolved in a way that it does not incentivize wellness. The problem in general with healthcare, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, is that as providers, it, you know, you're basically incentivized to bill for whatever you can, and that's because of the fee-for-service model meaning that when you show up to the doctor and, and you don't necessarily know what they're billing, you show up for a physical, something routine, they run some diagnostics. Now, depending on how they code that, they are going to be billing for different services they provided. And now each service they do is something they can bill for. So because of this, we end up with people spending a lot of money on diagnostics that they may not need. There is, unfortunately, just an incentive. Even if you are working in a not-for-profit healthcare system, everyone is still concerned with the finance side of it. I know people who are in the UNC healthcare system, the Duke healthcare system, and they are required to hit a certain number of relative value units, which is um, one of the things we'll talk about probably another day. But bottom line is all of the providers are you know, required, they have metrics to hit for billable events. And so that, that's, it's also a liability thing as two people who almost went to law school. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, uh, one did one dropped out. Well, yeah. Um, how, like there's so much diagnostic testing done to protect, like cover your ass testing yeah, to prevent, um, you know, litigation later on, uh, like so many extra tests just to make sure the doctor is okay. Like, so yeah, I, it's, yeah, anyway, the, the, the fee-for-service model is the system-wide problem that incentivizes sickness instead of wellness. I think that is the, one of the key takeaways here is that our system in this fee-for-service model is set up, and basically the sicker you are, the more we can poke around and try and fix you, the more we get paid. And that's not what we're looking for. We don't want to come in sick. So we need a system that incentivizes wellness, not sickness. And unfortunately, the way our healthcare system is set up right now, it's the opposite. Yeah. 
But if, when I when I think about the future, so just on that, I, there's a huge movement in, especially in Medicare Medicaid, right now. This move towards value based reimbursement, and it's starting to trickle in to the commercial insurance side of things. And it's something I'm incredibly interested in, because under this model, now. It, it, <laughs> I'll talk about the extreme ends of the spectrum. In the full fee-for-service model, you know, if I'm a provider, let's say that I'm a family doctor, I am going to bill for every service I provide. And everything, if I hit the criteria for those billing events, then I'm just going to get paid for that, regardless of whether or not the patient needed it. Now, if we go to the other end of the spectrum on a fully capitated risk-sharing model, under a value-based reimbursement structure, if I am a primary care doctor, and this is oversimplifying it, but if I'm a primary care doctor and say I have 10 patients, then I receive a set amount of money to care for those 10 patients, and I've got to figure out how to do it. So if I can do it in a more cost-effective and efficient manner, then I actually stand to make more money because I have saved the healthcare system the burden of that cost. Mm-hmm. But if I cannot treat my patients effectively, I may actually owe the payers money, which sounds crazy. But, uh, and, and we're not at really either end of the extreme, but we do need to move towards that value-based reimbursement structure. Yeah, and especially considering the fact that there are you know so many treatments that get really released every year. Um, I think it, the drugs that had over a billion in revenue rose from six in like 1996 to um, over 52, 10 years later. And we're having like these drugs released every year, which, and they're getting better and better, which is great, but sometimes they're only marginally better, but they mm-hmm. cost a lot more. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking, you know, you brought fee, uh, value-based reimbursement, if we're going towards that model, then a doctor can decide, well, the the extra health outcome benefit of this is not worth the extra thousands of dollars in cost. Right. And I think that's one of the important things to actually consider. No one wants to talk about valuing a human life, Mm -hmm. but it's actually important. And I'm not going to put a dollar amount on it in this podcast. I haven't done enough research, but when we're talking about extending life, everything, if we're going to compare apples to apples, we need to understand what, kind of money goes in for the output or the outcomes and health we expect. So just a marginal increase, if it's astronomically expensive, isn't necessarily worth it. Um, And is it the only parameter we want to look at, just like traditional metrics of health outcome? I mean, I think when when we started this podcast, we want to look at other things too. And I don't know. Well, I, w- I would say that the traditional measures, I, I, th- I don't think anyone's on the same page. I mean, we yeah. don't actually know how to capture health outcomes very well. And I think there's, you know, when I think about this, if uh, as, as providers, we often see that there's a conflict between the payers. We don't think the payers are paying us enough for what we're doing. And on the payer side of things, I completely understand how they get frustrated with providers either doing unnecessary or ineffective treatments. And so we really need to share better information. I mean, one of the key things is linking back actuarial data about the basic health outcomes, you know, the cost of uh, providing services, how that's affecting, you know, follow-on care. Um, We need to connect that back to the actual services being provided. And that's 
really difficult to do, and no one's doing a great job of it yet. But we really need to eliminate this, you know, kind of uh, contrived conflict between payers and providers, and we really need to be focusing on the healthcare system as a whole. Yeah, I mean, this really, I mean, you're talking about the information asymmetry going yeah. on. Uh, payers have a whole host of information, providers have a whole host of information, and the patient walking into the clinic doesn't have a lot of information. Yeah. In which in case you get like those surprise bills, you get like, it, it, making it real, like you can you can really be on a ride where you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to change. So you, you had asked about just kind of the future of healthcare. Mm-hmm. I think some of this, you know, we've talked about the changing of the fee-for-service model. I, I view that as really important. I think we just have to make sure that our healthcare system is set up and has the right incentives because otherwise, whether it's a not-for-profit or a for-profit organization, doesn't really matter if they're all playing in the same misaligned incentive game. One of the other things I think we've got to talk about is technology. I mean, everyone now has a supercomputer in their pocket for the most part. And this has led to a proliferation of online therapies, online treatment, uh, just because I think the coronavirus alone kind of moved us five to ten years forward on the digital revolution in healthcare. So a lot of people didn't see a healthcare provider in person for a year, but that doesn't mean they didn't get their primary care visits. Um, the, the world continued to move on. So I think that is one simple thing is now we have access, people are more comfortable with seeing a provider through an online platform, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, if, if we're talking about something like psychiatry, some of the, the basic prescribing things, maybe not just psychiatry, but as a primary care doctor, a lot of what you're doing is algorithmic thinking. And if you show up with X, Y, and Z symptom, we prescribe B. If you show up with, um, you know, other symptoms, we prescribe C. There's no reason to think that humans do that better than a computer. If yeah. all you're doing is filling out a list of symptoms, then uh, a computer can do that. And there's the added benefit is that they are not as biased. And one of the things we haven't even hit on here, but just in healthcare in general, is a person of color showing up to a doctor's office has a different experience a woman than a, than a white male. A woman has a different experience than a white male. Mm-hmm. And that has been shown out time and time again. I'm sure we can probably put some studies in the show notes. Yeah. But that's a huge problem. And guess what? A computer doesn't have that bias. Yeah, it just looks at pattern recognition and outcomes. If, if all we're doing to prescribe s- certain treatments is that pattern recognition, then we should be rushing towards working with computers. Now, what does that say for those of us who are on the provider side? Are we all going to lose our jobs? Well, I would, I would imagine it'd be more like pilots and autopilot. Yeah. If we went down that direction, because you still need a human being responsible, ultimately, instead of having the, unless, unless we're really talking about increasing access to care. Yeah, and I think there's, I think it's, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I do think that one thing I would say that if you're on the provider side and you're thinking about being replaced by a computer, you should be, first of all. <laughs> And second, like, look how to work with computers. 
how can we provide better healthcare? Because a lot of what we're going to need in the future is just community. Mm-hmm. This, this notion of human flourishing, um, this is not about going and picking up your prescription. That isn't going to make you flourish. But a healthcare system that is really providing value to its patients, if we're on the provider side of things, we've got to think about the experience that they have when they come into our office, what we can do to connect with them outside of the office. How do we really promote wellness? And so if you think, if all you're doing is simple algorithmic thinking, medication management that is basically a rote action, then you should be replaced by a computer. We need providers who are engaging with patients and really helping establish a community based on wellness. So I don't think that we have a reason to fear for our jobs, uh, but I do think that we need to make this transition and get ahead of the game. Just like what's happening with education. I mean, we can do it all online. Yeah, I, I conceptually agree with a lot of what he says, but I think also part of my job bringing it back down to earth. I mean, if we look at how long we have to go, it's going to happen slowly and then all at once most likely. But if we look at the pandemic, we had an issue with behavioral health providers couldn't, couldn't do telehealth across state lines for a while. Yeah. There was a huge, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about basic barriers, then we need to get knocked down. Yeah, yeah. And well, so. tell me, how would you feel about if you were told you were just going to see, uh, instead of seeing a psychiatrist, if you mm-hmm. needed, you, you know, hadn't been feeling well, maybe struggling with depression, and you were told, hey, or let's say primary care, instead yeah. of seeing your primary care doctor, who's going to ask a standard set of questions, you said, hey, you got to just pull up uh, healthcare.ai and fill out this form, and they're going to tell you what to do. How would you feel? Yeah, I'd feel fine. I think that there are some kink, there would be kinks to work out for hypochondriacs who go on, you know, WebMD all day looking up symptoms, and they may get different results. But uh, I think I don't really go to the doctor for the human interaction. Let's say mm-hmm. um, now, if you were talking about a psychologist or a therapist, where you're trying to get trained in social interaction, maybe there's a longer roadmap for AI there. But if we're talking about basic health services, I don't. Yeah, I don't go for the human interaction. I don't, go to, I don't go to an ophthalmologist for the conversation. Well, and I think that, again, when we think about that, though, when I think about, I mean, how great would it be for you to fill out all of that before you showed up to the doctor's office? I mean, how many times have you gone to the doctor and been given a clipboard to fill out? I mean, that is Way nuts. too many times. It is absolutely nuts. Doctors have you fill out a clipboard. I, I mean, I have never been in a doctor's office some, that, some of them are getting fancy. Some of them give you an iPad. I mean, and that's great. And, but it but is, that's, doesn't again, help. I sign up for an appointment online, and then I fill out the same information on paper. I, that, that's not. But I guess what I wanted to say was I would love to do my entire kind of diagnostics from my phone, from my computer before I show up, and then even, you know, get uh, probably a generated, this is the treatment recommended, this is what we're going to prescribe, et cetera but then still have that phone call or still see that doctor to just talk through it and make sure there wasn't anything else going on. Because I do think that uh, as humans, we are able to uh, think in a multidisciplinary manner that can't always get captured yet (laughs) with algorithms. Sure. And so, but that would be so nice to get like a one page 
print out and then go discuss it with your doctor and, and really spend the time doing that. Because when you're in there with a doctor, a lot of times all they're doing is pointing and clicking, filling out their notes. It really it, it doesn't feel good anyway, and you just feel like you're giving them the bare minimum. You might as well do that up front and then focus on that relationship, and, and then they can really focus on how to you know, help you achieve better wellness. Yeah, and I mean, there's so much in what you just said <laughs> that I want to talk about maybe in a future podcast. One thing I do want to mention, though, is we've been talking about like a healthcare passport Mm-hmm. So yeah. like the clipboard yeah. where you constantly have to like get referrals Insane. and get like your information, you know, jockeyed around and juggled between different providers. You have to track it down. Like, I, What would be the easiest solution to that? What could be easier than having like a single passport for your, all your health data that you can just give to a doctor? They can download it and get your medical history right away. And yeah, again, that's another one of the you know revolutions that's going to happen. I think it was all around digital identification and uh, that, yeah, that's a whole nother podcast, but just to, just to come back, it's your yeah. job. We, we got off track. I was talking about I don't AI think we got tra- off track. I think, I think we were talking about some realistic ways to address some of the fundamental problems with for, you know, that people can associate with for-profit healthcare rightly or wrongly, but are generally related to the rise in healthcare costs and the lack of access to care. Yeah. And I, I think maybe we, we start to wrap this up, but yeah. Whether or not it's a for-profit healthcare system or a not-for-profit healthcare system, we need to be focused on the access to care, the affordability, and the quality of care. That's period. That needs to be the focus. And in order to align system-wide incentives, we need to move away from the strict fee-for-service model. We need to move more towards a risk-sharing model where, you know, providers and payers feel like they're sitting on the same side of the aisle and then we do need to look one thing we didn't hit on that you you discussed briefly was the role of innovation i think when we talk about what capitalism can be really effective at it is innovation and you know there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry we've seen a big payout from the purdue lawsuit uh, this year but if we are going to innovate, these are people who are often dedicating decades to a technology that may or may not work. And so there needs to be an incentive for them to do this the long drudgery that leads to innovation. And so I do think it's important that we allow uh, for-profit healthcare, whether it is in the service provision side or in the R&D side, so to flourish. But we do need to be worried about the systems Uh, that are in place, and how we can better align incentives moving forward. Absolutely. All right, so I think um, for next week we have Sam on. Yeah, we're going to have Sam Sager, a good friend, and he's actually going to talk to us a little bit more in depth. He knows a lot more about the value-based reimbursement movement, and it should be a lot of fun. We're going to have an actual, would you call him an expert? Because we're not. No. Maybe we'll have an expert on. He's not an expert either. Yeah, just some schmuck who's friends with us. <laughs> if you're friends with us, he's, you can't really be. He's a an expert. All right. So, so next week, we are going to have Sam Sager on. Should be a lot of fun as we dive into value-based reimbursement and how that's going to transform healthcare in the future. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for joining. Have a good day. Business of human flourishing 